0: Um, the reading tonight is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the te- teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, so if you've got a Bible, do keep it open at that reading. What an incredible part of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I don't know what you think of the book of Revelation, whether it scares you, whether it excites you. These little letters at the start of the book of Revelation are quite incredible. Now, there are seven of them, and the numbers in the book of Revelation are hugely significant. Seven means perfection, seven means completeness, seven means universal. So the fact that there are seven letters at the very start of the book of Revelation means that it's meant for every Christian in every age anywhere. So as we take a look at this particular letter to the church at Pergamum, why do we pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, that you love us so much, that you've given us Jesus, that you've given us your word. We thank you that your word reveals you in all your fullness and all your beauty. Lord, may we hear it, may we grasp it, may we obey it that the warnings to the church of Pergamum, we may heed, we may hear. Lord, may may we be those who have ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wonder if you're going to write a list of the things that are good about this church and the things that are bad about this church. What would you include? Well, the things that are good. Well, you've got a very good-looking pastor. I know that. The other things that are good, in normal times, we would serve tea and coffee. That might be a good thing. And buns, sometimes. Sometimes are really good, depending who makes them. Maybe the welcome, you'd put that in. Maybe the seats, you could say, well, yes, 7 out of 10 for the seats. used to be more comfortable when we had cushions on them. Maybe you might put down the fellowship, as in the friendships and the humor of your friends. You might put that in. What about the negatives? well, the lighting's a bit dark or the sound system's a bit rubbish or it's not a very up-to-date building or the version of the Bibles that you use is a bit unsound or archaic or something like that or the songs that you sing, they're not great or, I mean, I haven't found a girlfriend yet or a boyfriend yet. You haven't provided one of those. What are the things that you put down in the positive list? What are the things that you put down in the negative list. So in these seven letters to the seven churches, the seven churches were churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. They were in, like, cities or large towns, quite significant centers of population. And he begins by writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says, you've lost your first love. Ephesus was close to the place where John, who received this revelation from Jesus, was close to the place where he lived. Not because he chose to live there, but because he was a prisoner. He was in the island of Patmos, which is a bit like a rotten island, uh, you know, where Nelson Mandela was. There was no way out of that island when you arrived on it. Certain death. And if you ever look at chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, please do either physical Bible or virtual Bible. Chapter 1, you'll see verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I, I did say that he didn't choose to live there in Patmos. An ancient writer described the island of Patmos as a dry and arid place, just the kind of island that you would pick if you were Caesar, the Caesar of Rome, or a prisoner, or a prison. Do you see why he's there? He tells us, verse nine I, John, your brother and companion, in the the fun parts of being a Christian, the happy parts of being a Christian the fulfilling parts of being a Christian, the exciting parts of being a Christian? No. Your brother and companion or your partner in the suffering. How's that go down with you, suffering? I mean, you do realize that the world hits you. If you're living distinctively as a Christian and speaking distinctively as a Christian, you want a friend. You do realize that. It won't be comfortable in this world. If it is, then there's something wrong. This idea of suffering is picked up quite a bit in these seven letters. Virtually each of the letters, all of the letters, touch on it in some way. You see, why the suffering? I, John, your brother and companion, partner, fellow, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of what? Because he robbed a bank? Because he had a speeding fine, which he didn't pay? No, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is in prison because of Jesus, because of the message of Jesus, because of the word, because of this thing. The message about Jesus which he was preaching in his own mission. You know the Gospel of John? That was his tract. You know the letters of John? Those are his follow-up. And John is in jail on an island, a dry and arid place from which there was no escape except in death. Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I wonder how you hear that. This evening, Jesus says, as the world hated me, they will hate you. Paul says, it's a privilege to know Christ and his suffering. I have no idea, absolutely no idea what your life is like, where your life is, what you do, who you have in your circle or circles. But if you begin to speak about Jesus, living Jesus' way, you might end up in prison. Maybe literal, physical prison, or metaphorical, social prison. I have no idea. But if you're not experiencing those things, if you're not experiencing rejection, what are you doing? What are you saying? How are you living, going with the flu, against the flu? And whenever we get into this third letter, the church of Pergamon, sorry, the church, yes, the church of Pergamon, there's Ephesus, there's Smyrna, there's Pergamon, the Saratara, there's Sardis, I used to read Sardine, but that's just my kind of inability to read, Sardis, church in Philadelphia, and the church at Laodicea, those are the seven churches, and we're already told that this is for them. In chapter 1, the church of Pergamum is experiencing some odd things. And in the list of the good things, remember that list? The list of the good things on one side of the page, there's lots. Lots to commend it. In the list on the other side of the page, the bad things, there's a lot to take note of. There's a lot to repent of. maybe the book of Revelation does scare you. Don't let it scare you. The picture language in the book of Revelation, it's really quite simple. There are those, of course, who make mistakes with it. I've made many mistakes with it. But there are those, I suppose, who kind of perhaps have a bit of an agenda with the New Testament, have a bit of an agenda with even the book of Revelation, and try to make it something, say something that it doesn't actually say. And the controls And the key, if you like, to all of the metaphors or all of the picture language, you'll find it in the rest of the Bible, particularly in the rest of Revelation. So if you're wondering what a sharp double-edged sword is, you need to turn to the book of Hebrews. If you're wondering who has the dark sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, it's Jesus. Jesus. If you have a look just in chapter 1 again, chapter 1, verse number 16, you'll see some of this picture language used. And then later on in a bit, it's explained. Verse 16, chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. What is that about? Well, it's the same double-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, verse 12, as he begins this letter, particularly to the church at Pergamum. to so the angel of the church in Pergamum write: these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the sharp, double-edged sword refers to the word of God. I've never really been into sword fighting, maybe when I was five, my son is, and he once found a sword, and he was very excited, but like we're talking a real sword, not a plastic sword, not a wooden sword, like a proper sword. It's probably this long. What was interesting about it is just one side of the sword was sharp. The, the, The tip of the sword was very sharp, as I've still bear the mark on my foot, It's interesting, with a double-edged sword, it's much more effective than a single-edged sword. If you're ever going to get into sword fighting, buy a double-edged sword. Because no matter what way you swing it, it will cut. Whereas the single-edged sword, if you swing it, you have to make sure you get the sharp edge as it connects with the body, or the neck, or the leg. I haven't thought about these things. You might be freaked out a bit. Please don't go home and tell your moms. The single-edged sword is partially effective, 50% effective. The sharp, not just double-edged, but sharp, probably sharpened double-edged sword, is 100% effective. And what is the sword? As Hebrews tells us, and this is language that's being used in Bible times, it's the Word of God, the message of the gospel, the testimony about Jesus, The sharp, double-edged sword, which, as Hebrew tells us, cuts through bone and flesh. The Word of God cuts through all of the crazy ideas that us human beings have conjured up to get away from God. It cuts away all the rubbish. It cuts cuts away all of our excuses, all of our sinfulness. It cuts it to shreds. When you hear the atheist, the sharp, double-edged sword says to the atheist, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When the person who's been persuaded by multi-faithism and that every religious road will lead you to God, the sharp, double-edged sword, quack, quack, cuts that away, and you hear Jesus say, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the sharp, double-edged sword. Whatever you're thinking about God this evening, apply the sharp, double-edged sword of the Word of God and see if what you're thinking is true. It could just be your imagination. It's powerful. Each of these Letters tell us similar things. They are different, but they tell us similar things. And each tells us, I know, Jesus says, I know something. The church of Ephesus, you can see this pattern. Have a look, church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, then 2. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. You might wonder, what on earth is that all about? Well, just look up. The answer is in the last paragraph of chapter 1. Then, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Next, church, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know then the fourth church, the church of Tharatarra. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know. That's the pattern. It then goes from I know to I have something. I have a bit of an issue with you. I have a bit of a thing with you, Jesus says to the church. There's something you need to put right. This is the pattern. I know. You need to sort this, guys. That's my paraphrase. You need to sort this, guys. And then there's an invitation to put it right. The problem is outlined, and then there's the hoped-for result. That's the pattern. So what does Jesus know about Pergamum? Jesus knows this church, by the way. He's not blind. He's not deaf. He can see right into our very character, right into our very membership, right into our very, he knows. So what does he know about the church of Pergamum? Well, he knows where they live, not just their address. He knows the environment and the atmosphere in which they live. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Imagine that. Satan ruler? Satan ruler of a city where there's a church? Jesus knows. Yet you remain true to my name. Who is Satan? He's God's enemy. That's who Satan is. He's a big liar the big accuser. And he's been dealt a fatal blow. And he's going down, but he wants to bring everyone down with him. He knows his defeat, but on the way down, he's trying to ruin everything, all of God's people, all that God has built, all those whom Jesus has died for, He wants to ruin you. He wants to finish you. And imagine this Satan has the throne, has the power. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. might have been that the Christians in Pergamum were facing significant persecution. No one in the hierarchy, if you like, of the city was for them. They were isolated. They might have been faithful, but they were faithful. They remained true to his name. When Satan attempted to ruin them, destroy them, when Satan attempted to get them compromising themselves, they remained true and faithful. You did not renounce. You see the rest of this in verse number 13? You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness, who is put to death in your city. Here's a martyr. A martyr. He's mentioned in Acts in the book of Acts. Antipas was killed for the sake of the gospel. Who is put to death in your city, And he says it again. Satan lives. Significant opposition. Significant trouble for the Christians. The government's against them. The rulers are against them. Why is that? Well, it's because a Christian says that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the basic Christian confession. Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Some commentators think this is really shorthand. Satan, but the Caesar who is opposing Christians and throwing them to the lions. Emperor Diocletian was probably emperor at this time. Where Satan lives. How are you going to fare? There are quite significant things happening, aren't there, in our country at the moment, politically. In a way, and at a speed, I don't think I have ever seen before. Marriage, redefined. Human life, redefined. When it begins, value. Gender, redefined. This is big stuff. These things are fundamental to human beings. There are forces, and I'm using the language advisedly, there are forces who are saying, well, no, see the way God made you. That's now irrelevant. You can create your own identity. You can make up what you are. You see, life, where does it begin? Well, is it when you're zygote or when you fused into a... At what point is life? It's when you're sentient, able to breathe. Is, is that gender? No, no, it's not that. It's this. Significant things, redefining things, things that make everything up for question. And How will you fare? How will you vote? What will you say? What will I say? There's a pressure that is intensifying. Various people saying various things, from both outside and inside the church. God's word, which is that sharp, double-edged sword. It's not just ignored. It's considered dangerous. So that's the good side. That's the list on the good side. The good bits. They've remained true. They've remained faithful. They've withstood and they continue to withstand Satan. Well, what about the one or two wee things? I used to work here a long time ago in the 90s, late 90s. I hasten to add. And there's a guy I worked for who would say, yes, that was good, but I've got a few wee things to say to you. Can I say a wee thing to you? I always knew the next words were going to be painful. Right? Now, this is Jesus saying, can I say a wee thing to you? Right? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Within their number, of course, there are those who are holding firm, withstanding Satan, really strong, the kind of Christians, I guess, certainly I would want to be, and I'm sure you would want to be too. But then there are others who are imbibing stuff. Others within the church who are imbibing stuff. What is that stuff? What has to do with teaching? False teaching. Which leads to idolatry. Which leads to sexual immorality. If you want to rip apart a church, if you want to make a church faithless, if you want to ruin a church, then engage in this stuff. If you want to rip apart a youth work or a team or a group of friends, or a growth group, or a Sunday school leadership team. If you want to do something, then engage in this stuff. It's been done before. It wreaks havoc. I've seen it time and time again, not only in church families, but on individual lives. Those who do it, and those who are impacted by it. Teaching is always really important. I mean, it is the thing that grows a church. And it is the thing that holds a church in Jesus. That's why most of the New Testament was written, because there was false teaching going on. A teaching that was leading people to live immorally rather than in a godly way. And in this case, this is to do with Balaam. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, if you want to find out about Balaam, there's a bit of a summary here as to what Balaam was all about. If you, if you want to read it in more depth, you need to turn to Numbers chapter 22 right through to Numbers chapter 24. Balaam has been drawn by Balak, who is the king, and as God's people were moving towards God's land, rescued them, as God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and they were moving towards the promised land, Balak didn't like this. He was an opposing king, and he called Balaam Prophet to speak words of cursing over the people of Israel. Every time he spoke curses, though, words of blessing came out of his mouth. God wouldn't let him do that. God simply would not let him do that. He was an opponent of God, God's rescue. And if you want to hear kind of a summary statement about him, if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and go to verse 15. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. There's a, a book called Jude, and then there's all the John letters, and then there's 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter at the end of the summer. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, where Peter is writing about the false teachers the false teachers who are bullying God's people into moving away from God's truth. So have a look at verse 13, and we'll go through to 15. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they face with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never never stop sinning. They they seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor who lived the wages of wickedness. Sorry, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. How ridiculous Balaam was made to look because a donkey spoke to him. A donkey. Can you believe it? How foolish this prophet, who should have been speaking words of blessing over God's people, how foolish he became. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. we go back to Revelation chapter 2. What was the thing that he made the people of God do? Well, he enticed the Israelites to sin, number one, through eating food sacrificed to idols. You might say to yourself, well, it's only food. Big deal. It is the significance of the food, though. And they knew the significance of the food. That this was food that had been offered to idols as part of their worship of false gods, opposing gods. And somehow, some of the Christians in the Church of Pergamum have been caught up in that idolatry. Have been caught up in the worship of false gods. What else happened? Committing. See this next few words. Committing sexual immorality. You want to know how you're going as a Christian. How you're behaving in that direction. You want to know whether you're being faithful or faithless. How are you going in that direction? If you want to know whether you're living a godly life, are you keeping your sex to marriage? And sex includes all of the stuff. By like committing sexual immorality. It's a sign, really, isn't it, of where your heart is? It's a sign and symbol as to where you're going and how you're going as a Christian. It's a sign and symbol as to whether you've heard the word of God and it's active in your life and in your mind, or whether it's not. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. It's not everyone. Not everyone in the church of Pergamum. Now, when you get into the next letter, you'll see how this ramps up a fair bit. In the Bible... False teaching and immoral living travel along together. They hold hands. If your teaching is wrong, or it is weak on a certain point, then your living will be wrong. Immorality will be so much easier to embrace. I have seen this time and time and time again. There is a phrase: "Look for the woman." a Far, friend. Look for the woman. Often, guys will say to me, "Yeah, see that stuff about the uniqueness of Christ and the plausibility of the Christian faith and the resurrection and all that kind. Of? See all that stuff. Yeah, I'm having problems with that." You know, I mean, it's a bit implausible, isn't it, that a human being was resurrected? I'm having problems with that. And I, I, like, I mean, it, it's difficult to believe. And like in this day and age, and postmodern theory, literary critical type theory, it's very hard to know exactly what the words of the Bible mean. I've got many more intellectual doubts and questions. But in most cases, those guys who kind of, throw that up to me because they're sleeping with their girlfriend. Especially the fan, Look for the woman. Time and time and time again. This is really what's going on on the inside. Entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual morality. How we use our bodies in this whole aspect will indicate what we think about Jesus. Whether the word of God is operative in our life and minds, whether we're trusting Jesus, whether we're repenting of our sins, of course you won't repent if you don't think that you haven't done anything wrong. Verse number 15, likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't really know what the Nicolaitans are, or who, sorry, who the Nicolaitans are. We think you'd be like a Santa Claus cult or something like that. You're allowed to laugh at that point. But that was quite good. Yes. The Nicolaitans. We don't really know. Who are they? Well, they're mentioned in in the the letter to the church at Ephesus. They're they're mentioned there. What are they doing? Well, they, they may be teaching immorality. They may be teaching Gnosticism. We don't really know, but you kind of get the point. There's a teaching that's opposing Jesus, that's opposing the gospel, that's opposing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, what are you to do? Paul says, no, sorry, not Paul. Jesus says through John, verse 16, continue on living the way you're living. If you're happy, don't let me stop you. Does Jesus say that? I mean, after all, your happiness is the most significant thing in your life. Or, well, maybe not too sure about things. Can't be too definite. I mean, if it makes you happy, what does Jesus say? Repent. 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 Repent, therefore, you see. Repent. Clear cut, isn't it? That's what I mean. Sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus comes in and just whack. The way all of our excuses, all of our pretense, all of our ideas, all of our justifying oneself, cut it away. He doesn't say, stop, stop it. He doesn't say that. Well, he does, I suppose, in the word repent. The word repent means... To stop doing it, say sorry, and to turn around and go the other direction. Don't keep going that way, into sin, run away from it. Having said sorry, turn around on your heels. Repent, therefore, because I'm going to come to you. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You don't want to be on the other side of Jesus' sword. You will never win. Jesus will come in to the church through the front door or the back door or the side door or through the windows or through the roof, wherever it is, with a sword. He's wielding it, whack, 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 and the Word of God will... These churches were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. A Christian nation today, two millennia on? Is there any mention of these churches today? No. They mustn't have repented. I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And if you don't, Jesus says, I'll remove the lampstand which you are. That one's quite easy, isn't it? Jesus is the light of the world. And what does the church do? It holds Jesus up. It holds the gospel up. It holds the light of the word of God up to the world. Where lamp stands, the light sits on us. He who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known, excuse me, known only to him who receives it. What on earth is that about? This is kind of the encouragement at the end of this list of the good and the bad. If you overcome, if you repent, if you put this right, if you say sorry and go in the other direction, I will give you some of the hidden manna. That was the food that the people of God got as they were traveling in the wilderness through to the promised land. I will also give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This comprises two ideas. In the judicial system in Pergamum, this is how judgments were made. There would have been black stones and there would have been white stones. And if someone was found by the jury to be not guilty, it would be a bag full of white stones. If someone was found guilty, a bag full of black stones. So here we have also, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on a white stone. Innocent. Not guilty, white stone. With a name, a new name written on it. Isaiah promises God's people you will have a new name. That's the idea. There will be salvation. There will be forgiveness. There will be rescue. There will be heaven for you if you repent. So The good and the bad. What about us? There are things to commend us? Positive or negatives? But the thing is, some of us might think of those negatives, but only the superficial ones, the unimportant ones. What about what's going on in here, in our minds? True worship, true activity. What is going on? Jesus says, Repent. And there will be forgiveness. And a welcome. And being declared not guilty forever. Only if we repent. over the course of these weeks, we're going to be looking at these seven letters in different contexts, up here in Sunday evenings and uh, in St. Nicholas's on Sunday mornings from Peter's back as we've been preaching through the Psalms. I think we'll have a Psalm on uh, Sunday the 18th. But we're just working through these letters just to sharpen ourselves up as we embark and engage in a whole new term, as we feed our souls in preparation, as we hear Jesus' words of challenge to those who seek to be faithful, to those, those who seek to overcome the world the flesh, and the devil to serve the Lord Jesus in this setting, in this century. What an exciting opportunity and challenge that we have. Well, let's hear the word of God. These are his word. It's speaking to us. Have you ever wanted to hear the Spirit speak? You do, Do you go to the top of a mountain, Do you sit in this church building, fill it with candles and turn off all the lights. Is that what would you do to hear the Spirit speak? To kind of loud music, soft music, organ music, guitar music? Is that how you hear the Spirit speak? Is that how you hear the Spirit speak? No, that's paganism and mysticism. You hear the Spirit speak as you hear His Word speaking to the churches. God has spoken this evening? Because we've read this, the Spirit says, "Churches." Notice the plural. Not just one church. All of these letters are for all of the churches in all places. This one particularly outlines the good and the bad. What do we pray? Father, there is no point in trying to fool you. There's no point in trying to fool Jesus. How easy it is we fool ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would remain faithful and withstand even Satan's best attempts to ruin us. Even though He's in the ascendancy, or so it seems. Lord, we pray that we would not be seen and found faithless and unfaithful. Lord, we pray that we would be godly, that we would put to death our sin, that we would live pure lives, that we would worship only the true and the living God, hearing only his word. And so we repent. Please forgive us. Thank you that we may walk in newness of life, as our sins are forgiven. We pray that as we hear these words, please make them alive in our hearts and lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.